Open your Bibles, please, to the book of uh, Isaiah, the 27th chapter. Now, we said in this 27th chapter that we have three things. The conquered beast, verse 1. And the fruitful vineyard, verses 2 through 11. And the holy and happy feast, verses 12 and 13. And so we want to deal with it verse by verse and section by section as we go along and try to delve into some of the meaning of this passage of Scripture, if you will. If possible, we might get into the 28th chapter, but uh, that remains to be seen. Let's look at verse 1. 27 verse 1. It says, In that day, remember we have pointed out time and time again that that day refused, uh, refers rather to the day of the Lord uh, in the future at the end of the tribulation period and that particular period of time when he comes in judgment and various things close to the end of the tribulation period when Satan is uh, put on bound and and put on hold and when he is also cast out and various other things. There's twelfth chapter of the book of Revelation as well as the twentieth chapter, uh, a couple of places in the twentieth chapter. But uh, it says in that day the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan. Some say Leviathan. Strong says L-I-V-Y-A-W-T-H-A-W-N. Leviathan. So, I usually say Leviathan. So, if you want to say Leviathan, that's perfectly all right. Uh, shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, uh, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. So, this serpent and the dragon and this great sea monster monster that is spoken of is also mentioned in this verse. There's so many things that need to be said about this verse, and we'll try to give you as much as we can. The nations round about Israel had many myths about sea, monster, sea monsters, and one of whom was compared to Leviathan, or probably the crocodile, some say. And to slay Leviathan was a great achievement. In Psalm 74, verse 14, it says, Thou breakest the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gavest him to be meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness. So God is going to break the heads of these great sea monsters, serpent-like animals that we find. And so the Lord promised to do this, that he will do it in the future. And Satan held these nations in bondage through their persecutions, through the superstitious religions. And the remnant did not need to fear the false gods of the Gentiles because uh, God was going to set them free from all those wicked nations that is symbolized by this Leviathan. And he is going to set them free from them. And just like today, God's people are set free from the bondage of Satan. His representative is Satan. And uh, the false gods that uh, he seduces people to worship, we've been set free from them. The book of Colossians chapter 2, if you look at Colossians 2 verses, let's see if I can find it. Verse uh, 13 and 14, or 13 through 15. Notice what it says here. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. 
And listen, verse 15, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Remember, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And when Jesus died on the cross, he won the victory over Satan and this great sea monster that represents Satan. Uh, we find that it's going to finally be conquered by the Lord. And when the battle is over, the Lord has conquered evil. Israel, Israel as well as you and I, can enter into his kingdom without any fear of anything happening to us on, uh, any further. But there's a lot of things we'd like to say about this Leviathan. Uh, first, he's a wreathed animal, uh, a serpent, especially like the crocodile or some other large sea monster. And uh, figuratively, the constellation of the dragon, and then a symbol of the enemies of God who will be judged when the Lord returns. So there's so much that needs to be said about him. And he will be bound at a certain time. In the book of Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, is where you find Satan himself will be bound and uh, put in prison for, what, a thousand years? It says in Revelation 20, verse 2, And he laid hold on that on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that he must be loosed a little season. Then you get in, into the, the latter part of the 20th chapter, after the thousand years is over and he's turned loose for a little while. It says in verse 10, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and false prophet are, shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So that's the final doom of that great monster that's spoken of in Revelation 12 as that old, the great dragon. Revelation 12, verse 9, he's that great dragon. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. And he was cast out into the earth, and his angels cast out with him. Verse uh, 10 says, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. Now listen. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. So he's finally going to meet his end and his doom. Going to be cast out of the heavenlies. He's going to be put in prison for a thousand years, and then finally he's going to be taken out of this prison and be loosed a little season, go out to deceive the nations and four quarters of the earth. And then Revelation chapter 20, I believe I gave you in verse 10, he's going to be judged and cast into his final doom. So the Lord has promised victory over this great uh, beast that we speak of here. And that victory we are looking forward to. And the way he wins that victory, look in verse 1 again of our text. Isaiah 27, verse 1. In that day the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword. What does he use? The Lord has a, a great and strong sword to punish this piercing serpent, crooked serpent and the dragon. He shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. How does God overcome and God win the victory? The Bible teaches us that uh, He has a strong sword. 
We might say this includes the virtue of Christ's death and the preaching of his gospel, the word of God. It is by the death of Christ that the enemy is overthrown. If you look in the book of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took, took part of the same. Now listen, that through death, through Christ's death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. By virtue of Christ's death, he took charge of that old serpent, the devil. Some of you have seen uh, the way Tarzan dives into the lake and the rivers and wrestles the crocodiles. But the Lord went into the rivers of death and the waters of death. And he went uh, into that river of Jordan. We let that picture death in the Bible. Jordan is a picture of death. And he tasted death for every man. And it says that through death, you wouldn't think anybody could do anything through death. But through his death, it says that he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. You see, it's like David taking old Goliath's own sword and beheading him. Jesus took the devil's sword and he turned it against him. This is what the devil likes to do. Death is his the thing he likes. He he wants to steal and what? To kill. That's death, isn't it? And to destroy. Remember, Jesus said, I'm come that they might have uh, life and they might have it more abundantly. He says, the thief comes not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. And how prevalent that is today when we see our young people facing the things. The devil's trying to steal and to kill and destroy lives. Jesus came that he might uh, save lives that they might live and have life more abundantly. And so here Jesus, in Hebrews 2, verse 14, takes Satan's sword and he uses it against him. Don't you know the devil thought he had a field day when Jesus was being crucified? Remember, he put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. He 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 thought, boy, I've got the ball rolling down the hill now and I'll just keep it going. Jesus will die pretty quick. But you see, there's a little secret about that he didn't know anything about. When he put Jesus to death, he did himself in. That's exactly what happened. And it says, And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So Jesus came not only to destroy the one that had the power of death, but to deliver us from the fear of it, knowing that now we have, when we die, we depart to be with the Lord. And Death will have no more dominion over us. Even the second death. It says all those that have part in the first resurrection, Revelation chapter 20 again, on such the second death hath no power. He took the fangs out of that death. Not only the physical death so that we'll be resurrected and taken to be with the Lord, but that spiritual death that would ultimately separate us from God, He's taken the fangs out of that too because He said on such the second death hath no power. You know, we as Christians, as God's children, redeemed by the blood of Christ, do not realize the bounty that's ours, the blessings that's ours. The devil, he just he can cause us a lot of trouble, but you know there's an end to what he can do. There's a measure to what he can do. There, there, he can only go so far. You remember when he was causing Job so much trouble? What did God say? He says, you can do, go so far, but... T- Touch not his life. And then Satan says, well, 
God, you have a hedge built around it. Well, God has a hedge built around us too. A hedge of protection that the devil cannot penetrate. And you say, well, boy, he's sure giving me a lot of trouble. Well, God let him go so far and that's it. You can tell he's going to, you know, it says in the book of Romans, Paul says that, that the Lord Jesus shall bruise Satan under your feet, his feet shortly. Satan's going to be bruised for the final time. And he's looking forward to the future coming of that destruction. So in that day, <clears throat> in that day, the Lord with His sore and great strong sword. Now, in the book of Revelation, you know, if you go over there, you'll find that He comes uh, with a sword of His mouth and He rules the nations with a rod of iron. And so that same sword, it's not a literal sword that comes out of His mouth, but it's a piercing word. That sword that pierces and is sharper than any two-edged sword. And today, you and I have the privilege of also having a part in this victory by the preaching of the Word of God. Notice that in that day, the Lord uh, with His sore and great strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and He shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. And you and I, if we're going to win any victory today over Satan and his power, we have to use that sharp two-edged sword. The Word of God. And we have to preach the Gospel, which is the Bible says is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. That's our business, isn't it? And that's what we need to be faithful in doing. So, Israel's chief enemies are going to be destroyed. Our enemies are going to be destroyed as well. And this one that you find is symbolical of all of those enemies of God that's inspired by Satan, enemies of God's people that's inspired by Satan and his power, and is and that's empowered by Satan. Now the next section we find is a fruitful vineyard, verses two through eleven. You have Isaiah twenty seven. Notice it says in verse uh, 2, In that day sing ye unto her a vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, do keep it. I will water it every moment, lest any hurt. Lest any hurt it. I will keep it night and day. God is going to take care of that vineyard. You know, the vineyard is Israel. You know, in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, in fact, if you turn back there quickly, I'll just give you two verses it tells all about God preparing the vineyard and what He did and how He took care of it. But verse uh, 7, we'll read, it says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. In other words, God interprets His own words sometimes. Someone says, well, who's that? what is that vineyard He's talking about? Well, God says, here's the answer. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah His pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, and behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry. So, uh, the vineyard that's spoken of here in Isaiah 27 is also a picture of Israel. But the prophet in, in uh, Isaiah 27 sees both the Israel of his day, which God had already spoken in chapter 5 as Israel, he sees the Israel of his day and the Israel of the future when the kingdom will be established. So there's going to be a fruitfulness of that vineyard in a future time. You know, God was not angry with his people, but he was just 
wanting them to return. In verse 4 it says, Fury is not in me who would set the briars and thorns against me in battle. I would go through them. I would burn them together. The fury of God was not against his people, but it was against God's enemies. The briars and thorns referred to his to Israel's enemies. See in verse 4, Fury is not in me. Who would, who would set the briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. In other words, God says, I'll take care of them. I would burn them together. The Lord did exactly that to Israel's enemies. He used Assyria. He used the war of Assyria to punish the northern kingdom of Israel. And he used the captivity, referring to Babylon, to discipline the southern kingdom. But he did this in love and not in anger. In verses 10 and 11, our description of Jerusalem after the Babylonian siege, it says, verse 10, Yet the defense city shall be desolate. So God took this, the cities and the enemies of God's people down, and the habitation forsaken and left in, like a wilderness. There shall be, there shall the calf feed, and there shall he lie down. In other words, when a city is destroyed and is left to the, to um, just the weeds and the grass and the vegetation to grow, it's not a city any longer. It's just fit for cattle and animals to feed upon. The calf will feed there. When the boughs thereof are withered, the desolation of it, they shall be broken off. The, the women come and set them on fire, for it is a people of no understanding. Therefore, he that made them will not have mercy on them. He will, that formed them will show them no favor. So God will bring judgment when the time comes. And though God temporarily took away His mercy until His purposes were fulfilled, yet He used uh, His destruction upon the enemies, the Babylonian siege, to tender His people and cause them to turn to Him. It was for the purpose of their repentance. If you come back to verse uh, 5, it says, Or let me take hold of my strength that He may make peace with me, and He shall make peace with me. He shall cause them that come out of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. We said that fruitful, fruitful vineyard that's spoken of in verse 2. In that day sing ye unto her a vineyard of red wine. That it represents the house of Israel. And it not only represents them in, in Isaiah's day, but in the future day. In which we see that Jacob shall take root and Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. So there's a fruitful time coming for God's people in the future for the nation of Israel. Let me just stop before we take up verse 7. I've had some people to say, and probably you've heard it too, where they'll say, well, what difference does it make about Israel? Why don't you tell us about the church? Why don't you tell us about Christians and what... What difference does it make about God's promises to Israel? Well, if God will keep His promises to a nation of old that He delivered out of bondage and kept through the uh, wilderness and entered into Canaan's land and instructed by the prophets and kept on promising them that there would be a future day of fruitfulness with them, of deliverance and of fruitfulness that they would have, and if you're sure that God will keep His promise for Israel, then you ought to be really sure that God will keep His promise to you and us. Because He has made a new covenant of grace with us. 
based not upon the law and upon the Old Testament prophets, but it says the law and the prophets were till John, but since that time the kingdom of God is preached. But he's made a covenant of grace with us through the shed blood of Christ and sealed it with the blood of Christ. So you and I ought to have a great deal of assurance. And these lessons that concern Israel ought to give us that assurance. In other words, if God will keep the first promise and the latter promise that really is not based especially on the shed blood of Christ, but upon His promises through the Old Testament. And you and I have promises that are given to us based upon the shed blood of Christ. Then we know for certain that if God sent His only begotten Son into the world and gave Him to be a sacrifice for our sin on the cross of Calvary, that certainly every word that relates to this new covenant He will keep. So we need to have that assurance. Look at verse 6. It says, Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world. Verse 7, it says, Hath he smitten him as he smote those that smote him? Or is he slain according to the slaughter of them that are slain by him? In measure when, when it shooteth forth, thou wilt debate with it. He stayeth his rough wind in the day of the east wind. So God smites, but God also heals. And in the day of the rough wind, or in the day of the east wind, this violent, dry, and dusty wind, we find that God's punishment on Israel was given to discipline them. And in the next verse, He shows that all these things happen for a purpose. Verse 9, By this therefore shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged. By what? By this. By this that Israel endures, the iniquity of Jacob be purged. And this is all the fruit to take away his sin. Now, it doesn't mean that by suffering Jacob could redeem or atone for their sins. But it does mean that God's punishment on Israel was to discipline and to lead them to repentance, take away their sin because they would repent of their sins. When God disciplines you and I, it's not that through the suffering that we endure that our sins are removed. A lot of people have the idea that the more they suffer, the, the more that redemption they have in that purging process. But that's not so. There's no redemption for anyone apart from the shed blood of Christ. So the suffering you do is God's disciplinary action sometimes to bring you to a, a condition of repentance of heart. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Let's see. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 6 says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. See, chastening is for a purpose. And scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily, the fathers after of a flesh, for they, these earthly fathers, verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he, that is God, he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. That's what God does. And then it says in verse 11, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. 
Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. So when God chastens us, he does it to bring us to a place of submission and place of repentance and correction. Just like back in our text, Isaiah 27, verse 9. By this, what they had endured, by this, therefore, shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged, and this is all the fruit to take away his sin. So it doesn't mean that through this his sins are taken away, but the fruit of doing this, the fruit of this chastening and this disciplinary action and bringing them to repentance will take away their sin because they'll repent of sin and God will forgive it. When he maketh all, when he maketh all the stones of the altar as chalk stones that are beaten in sunder, the groves and images shall not stand. What are chalk stones? They're like, 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 uh, from being burned in a kill, a stone to build, and that are beaten in sunder, they will be broken in pieces. It will not stand. The groves and the images, the sun images, shall not stand. The images that they trusted in, the images that they worship. And then he goes on to say, and we read verse 10 and 11, where the defense city shall be desolate and the habitation forsaken. The desolation that comes. And verse 11 gives us something interesting we haven't touched upon. It says, When the boughs thereof are withered, they shall be broken off. We mentioned that, the desolation. The women come and set them on fire. For it is a people of no understanding. They do not understand the ways of God. He that made them will not have mercy on them. For he that formed them will show them no favor. They need to realize that it's a lack of understanding. You know, Hosea says, My people are destroyed for the lack of what? Knowledge. My people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. You read the prophet. Because they refuse to understand. No understanding. Now, verses 12 and 13 have to do well, there's so much that we need to say about the fruitful vineyard. Before I leave it, let me give you this summary. In the day of the Lord, God will use suffering to purge His people. That's a future day to prepare them for the kingdom. And we've already said that this ninth verse does not suggest that personal suffering can atone for sin. You know, that's where a lot of, of uh, doing penance comes in. That personal suffering can atone for sin. It doesn't do that. Repentance is a different thing than penance. You don't pay for anything. The Lord paid for it all. But chastening brings us closer to God where we will ask for repentance or where we'll ask for forgiveness by being repentant for our sins. And the, there's only one thing that can atone for sin and that's the sacrifice of Jesus. And God uses suffering as a discipline to bring us to submission so that we'll seek Him and His holiness and try to live the kind of life He'd have us to live. And the Babylonian captivity cured the Jews of their idolatry once and for all. When they went into captivity, and you read that in Isaiah 27 verse 9, it really cured them. It says that the, the altar, all the stones of the altar is chalk stone that are beaten in sunder. The groves and images shall not stand up. So God had to destroy groves and images in Isaiah's day. 
And in Isaiah's day, the vineyard that we're speaking about of Israel was producing wild grapes. Remember he said in Isaiah chapter 5 that he looked for grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. They were no good. It brought forth wild grapes. You go back and study Isaiah chapter 5. It says this in verse uh, 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment. That's the wild grapes. He looked for it. He didn't get it. But behold, oppression. You see, the wild grapes, they didn't bring forth the judgment. They brought forth oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. So it was right the opposite of what God, God expected judgment. But they, it brought forth the very opposite of what God would have, have uh, them to have. In verse 2 it says, They looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And then it says on down in verse 3 and 4, What's God going to do to His vineyard? You could read and study again that whole passage, which we've already studied once. But in the future kingdom, that's what it did in old, but in the future kingdom, what's going to happen? Israel will be fruitful and flourishing. We've already said in verse 6 that it will blossom and bud and fill the face of the whole world with fruit. There's coming a time that there will be fruitfulness for that nation. And God will guard His people and give them all they need to bring glory to His name. The nation will blossom and bud and fill the whole world with fruit. And though Israel and all nations of the earth will be blessed... It says that through them they will be blessed. Remember that what did God promise to Abraham? You take the Genesis chapter twelve, verses one through three. God said to Abraham that in thee shall all families and nations of the earth be blessed. And by the way, you know who he was talking about? In thee I will multiply thy seed as the sand of the seashore. That's the earthly aspect. Then he says as the stars of heaven, that's the heavenly aspect. And you get over, there are three verses of Scripture you need to remember. Genesis 3.15, John 3.16, and Galatians 3.16. Genesis 3.15, John 3.16, and Galatians 3.16. We know what Genesis 3.15 says. It put enmity between thee and thy seed, between the woman and the serpent. And then we know what John 3.16 says. It says, For God so loved the world. That's the seed. That's God's. That's the seed that was to be born that, that would uh, uh, bruise his heel. Bruise, and that He would bruise the head of the serpent. And then you get over to Galatians. Let's turn to Galatians 3.16. And I want you to see something. Galatians 3.16. Notice. It says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. We say, well, that's through all the descendants of Abraham. No, it's not. He saith not unto seeds as of many. Well, you know, Abraham had many seeds. He had uh, Abraham beget Isaac, and Isaac beget Jacob, and all their sons and daughters and families and the generations. Well, they would fill the whole earth with Abraham's seeds in that sense, or seed. But, Read it again. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not. He did not say to seeds as of many. He wasn't talking about all the descendants of Abraham. But as of one. One person. And to thy seed which is Christ. So really the blessings come through Christ. 
And God made the promise way back to Abraham and later on to Isaac and Jacob that through Israel all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But finally it was pointing to one particular person through whom the blessings would come. Let me sum this up before we get the next two verses quickly. The Bible speaks of three vines. We've been studying here about the the vine. Israel is the vine. The people of Israel. And we had that in chapter 5, verse 7, remember? In fact, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, if you read that passage again. But then, that was Israel. And next is Christ and His church. John 15. 15th chapter of John. It speaks of Christ and His church. And He says, I'm the true vine, you're the branches, and so on and so forth. And bearing fruit, it's a, it's a chapter on fruit bearing, that Christians bear fruit. And then He speaks of a godless Gentile society is the third vine, and it's called the vine of the earth. Now, I want you to get these three. The first is the people of Israel. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1-7. through seven. Uh, Christ and His church. John chapter 15. And then a godless, here's the third one, a godless Gentile society is called the vine of the earth. And you have that Revelation 14, verse 18. Let me read that for you. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 18. Here, if I can get the page turned. Verse 18 says, Another angel came from uh, out from the altar, which had the power over fire, and cried with a loud uh, cry to him that, that had the sharp sickle. Now look, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. They were ripened to judgment. That's the third vine. The first one is Israel. The second one, John 15. The third one you find right here. And the angel thrust in his sickle to the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of what? Of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city and blood came out of the winepress even to the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. So there's the vine of the earth. So those three vines you find. Now then, the vineyard of Israel is not bearing fruit, but the vine of the earth is filling the world with poisonous fruit. And God's people must be the faithful branches in the vine and produce the fruit that glorifies God's name. And that's our business today. We're to bear the fruit that God would have us to bear. Let's turn to the last two verses of this 27th chapter and we'll try to sum it up. We talk about the happy and holy feast. Let's read them. It shall come to pass in that day. This is Isaiah 27, verse 12 and 13. Isaiah 27, verse 12 and 13. And it shall come to pass in that day, you have that day again, that the Lord shall beat off from the channel of the river, river is usually the Euphrates, unto the stream of Egypt. By the way, this marks the border and boundary of Palestine and Egypt. And ye shall be gathered one by one, O ye children of Israel. God's going to gather one by one and restore His nation, His people. And then in verse 13, this is a holy and happy feast when, they're, when they return. And it shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown, and they shall come 
with, uh, which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria and the outcasts in the land of Egypt and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount of Jerusalem. At Jerusalem. Israel, Israel's literal regathering under the blowing of the trumpet. Now, boy, we get into something now. You know, they've been blowing that trumpet the last several years, haven't they? The trumpet representing the Lord's return. Since 1988 especially. They've blowed it two or three times and nothing happened. But when the Lord blows that trumpet, it'll happen. Well, let's leave it up to Him, not us. So, the camp of Israel was directed by the blowing of trumpets. You read that in the book of Numbers, the tenth chapter. And the feast of trumpets took place on the first day of the seventh month and prepared Israel for the annual day of atonement. You read that in Leviticus chapter 23. It prepared them for the annual day of atonement. The day of what sorrow, mourning, received. Leviticus 23. If I can find it. Uh, Beginning with verse 23. I think I've got time to give you this. Let's read verse 24. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall shall ye have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy... Convocation. Uh, This is the Feast of Trumpets. And this prepared Israel for the annual day of atonement. Verse 27. Also on the tenth day of the seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. And you get on down and you find what kind of uh, day it will be. In verse 28. You shall do no work in that same day, for it is a day of atonement to make an atonement for you before the Lord your God. And whatsoever soul shall... Uh, it shall be, uh, and for whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in that same day, he shall be cut off from uh, among his people. And whatsoever soul it be that doeth any work in that same day, the same uh, soul will I destroy from among his people. Ye shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all, all your dwellings. Verse 32 now. It shall be unto you a Sabbath of rest, and ye shall afflict your souls. It was a day of repentance. It was a day of atonement. In the ninth month of the, of the, in the ninth day of the month, at even from even to even, ye shall shall ye celebrate your Sabbath. So here was a time that was a feast of the trumpets, but the feast of the trumpets and this day of atonement. This day of atonement prepared them for the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a picture of the joy of the future kingdom. And that's the next section. The day of atonement prepared them for this particular time. And so, they're looking forward, we're looking forward to that time, that Israel shall thus have this happy and holy feast and be restored to their homeland. And you and I, are going to participate only in the sense that it for you and I it is symbolical of the sounding of the trumpet when the trumpet will sound for our rapture and our resurrection. We find that too. So Isaiah envisioned a glorious day when God would re- repeat the miracle of Exodus, deliver His people from their bondage uh, that they have to Gentile nations, which they will be during the tribulation. The trumpet will summon them to Jerusalem. And announce God's victory over their foes, and they will worship the Lord in His holy mountain at Jerusalem. And the kingdom will be like an endless feast and a holy day 
of worship as God's people rejoice in the Lord in the future time. And of course, for you and I today, for God's people today, we're also awaiting the sound of the trumpet. We're waiting the sound of the trumpet. And it's symbolized by this very sound that's given in the Old Testament. We're waiting for the sound of the trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, The trumpet shall sound, the dead in Christ shall rise. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 through 18, announcing the coming of the Lord for His church. Then we will go with Him to heaven. We'll prepare for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then we'll return with Christ to the earth to reign in, with Him in His kingdom. And that's the, the story for you and I that's waiting for the sounding of the trumpet. Israel is waiting for their sounding of the trumpet where they'll be restored and they'll have that eternal feast. But you and I are waiting for the, another trumpet sound because the trumpet sound is that the Bible says the trumpet shall sound, the dead in Christ shall rise. We which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And let us leave it there and not try to say, well, it's going to happen tomorrow or next year, this, this September. It may happen before September. It doesn't have to happen in September. Some people believe it does. But it doesn't have to happen in September. When, God, when the Lord gets ready to come, He didn't say, now you watch on, every, watch on that particular day in September, did He? He says, watch and be you ready, for you know neither the day nor the hour when the Lord's come. You don't know the day. You don't even know the month. You don't know the year. But he says, the Father has these things in His own power. But the main thing for you and I is what? To be ready. To be ready and be prepared. And I know there's a lot of, been a lot of takes on this, and, and people have made, made it mean a lot of things that it doesn't mean. But I'll tell you, the, the most... Uh, wonderful thing about it. We know that it is going to sound. And we know when it does sound, the graves are going to be open and the dead in Christ shall rise first. You know we talk about the rapture and the resurrection. We'll talk about the resurrection and the rapture. You know that? Because it says the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then, then, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. So, the resurrection is going to take place, but also the rapture in conjunction with it. So, you and I are waiting a day when the Lord is going to keep His promise of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I mean 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when the trumpet sounds. The Bible says, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye at the sound of the trumpet. Right? We find the trumpet sound. I heard a voice. John, John did in the book of Revelation, the fourth chapter. I heard a voice as the sound of a 